Hello and welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration, refugee, and population issues brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. On July 16, 2015, CMS hosted a nationwide teleconference and stakeholder roundtable with the Department of Homeland Security's Office of the Citizenship and Immigration Services Ombudsman on its newly released 2015 annual report to Congress. CMS Executive Director Donald Kerwin begins this episode by welcoming Ombudsman Maria M. Odom and her team, describing the Ombudsman's role in the U.S. immigration system and introducing the 2015 annual report. Thank you. I'm Don Kerwin of the Center for Migration Studies of New York, and we're honored to host today the CIS Office of the Ombudsman and the Ombudsman herself, Maria Odom, who's here in New York to my right. Uh, And the event is for the release of their annual report to Congress for 2015. Um, And I also wanted to say, by way of introduction, a few words of praise for the work of this report, which is exhaustive, It's expert. It includes information that people like myself and others can't get on their own. Um, And it's just a terrific piece of work, and I'd commend it to everybody. I also wanted to praise the Ombudsman's office overall. I think it was one of the two best ideas that came out of the Homeland Security Act, you know, the other being the movement of the children over to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, children detainees. But the Ombudsman's office was definitely a a top idea. And I wish that there was a similar office for the uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement and Customs and and CBP as well, but that's my own rogue editorial comment, and uh, uh, Maria doesn't have to be associated with that. In fact, I wish it was this office that, that was involved with those agencies. The ombudsman, the CIS ombudsman, which focuses on USCIS, has two general purposes. One is to identify and to make recommendations on improving services uh, and USCIS administrative processes. The other is to follow up on individual cases and situations where the system may not be working in the way that it was designed to work. And this is a very large part of the mission of CIS. You can see in the report that they handled something like 7,500 cases in 2015. So the office performs a vital function of improving government and a customer service function in an extremely important, complex, and consequential area for the people involved. And to do this work, it's assembled a team of almost unparalleled expert and talented staff several of whom are in the room today and others who are on the call, and Maria is going to introduce them. And last but certainly not least, the ombudsman has attracted top, top leadership in Maria Odom, who herself is an expert on these issues and somebody who's also very, very passionate and has a long-term commitment to them. I actually couldn't think of a better leader nationally for this office than Maria, and I'm really delighted that she's in this position and she's with us here today. Beyond her regular responsibilities as ombudsman for CIS, Maria also chairs the Department of Homeland Security's Blue Campaign, which is its initiative to combat human trafficking. So uh, let me hand it over to Maria, and again, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Don. It's, It's a real pleasure to be here, and thank you for the warm welcome and all those incredible words of praise. The, the work of our office is important, and this has been the greatest, one of the greatest joys in my career is to be in an organization with people who shared our commitment um, for 
excellent immigration services who are not afraid to be out in the public, who are not afraid to talk about problems, and more importantly, who bring their expertise to the table to propose solutions to USCIS and to anyone who will listen to us. So it is important, engagement is important to our office, and we couldn't do our work, we could not produce our annual report without the commitment of the folks at the Ombudsman's office. So let me introduce some of our staff today. In person, Alyssa McGovern is our Chief of Policy. Uh, she oversaw the development of the annual report, along with Adrian Shulapakorn, who is an immigration law specialist and an immigration law expert uh, with a vast uh, experience in this area. With us in person as well as Charlotte Flemings, who is our public affairs specialist, who is making sure that the public knows about this report, that stakeholders are given the opportunity to weigh in uh, on the report and any ongoing issues that need to be addressed over the next year. On the phone at our office in Washington, D.C. is Allison Posner, who is our chief of casework. Fred Tronconi and Peggy Gleason, both senior advisors in our office, as well as Lana Corey, who is assistant case chief. Don, you covered the scope of our mission, and uh, it's always a good thing to remind people that we are not part of USCIS. We were created by Congress to be independent, confidential, and impartial. So when you come to us with problems as an office of last resort, we work to resolve them. Um, in an impartial manner. We are thoughtful, we provide our input on a wide range of problems that are brought to our attention. So over the course of, of a day, we may work on employment matters, we may work on behalf of a refugee abroad, we may work on behalf of a DACA applicant or someone applying to bring their spouse here or for a provisional waiver, you name it. And the range of issues that we deal with span also the range of, of issues from uh, processing times, cases that have been delayed for a variety of reasons, administrative error, as well as a quality of adjudications, where we actually you know, look at a case, look at the, at the facts, at the evidence, at the applicable laws, regulations, and policy, and um, actually provide uh, an assessment to USCIS with a request for review. So lots of good work being done at the Ombudsman's Office, and I am very proud to be, to be part of that. Award on the Blue Campaign. Uh, an honor to, to be uh, part of a team at DHS hosted by the Ombudsman's Office at the Ombudsman's Office um, to promote public education awareness on human trafficking indicators, to work with our Federal Law Enforcement Training Center to produce current, easy-to-use training tools for law enforcement, both inside US DHS but also across the country at the state and local level and also in Indian country. And finally, to support DHS components in their work to combat human trafficking. So it is important work. I encourage you to go on our website or, or search for Blue Campaign and consider partnering with us to get this message out. So we're here to talk about the annual report. And our goal with the annual report is to tell Congress what we've seen as the most prevalent, pervasive, and serious problems brought to us by stakeholders or that we've seen in our case assistance function. I always uh, convey to our USCIS colleagues that there isn't enough room in this report to capture all of the agency's accomplishments. There is a lot of good work that happens across the country at USCIS offices, posts abroad, um, and in our, our refugee and asylum division as well. Lots of good work. We are charged, however, with 
presenting in this report the problems that we have seen over the course of the year. And we do use that opportunity to highlight certain programmatic and policy achievements of the agency during the reporting period. In June 2012, the Obama administration announced the creation of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, known as DACA, to provide temporary relief from deportation to certain undocumented youth. In November 2014, President Obama announced an expansion of DACA, as well as the creation of DAPA, a similar deferred action program for undocumented parents of citizens and lawful permanent residents. 26 states, however, filed suit against the federal government, arguing that the programs violated the U.S. Constitution and Administrative Procedure Act. The judge overseeing the case issued a temporary injunction preventing the implementation of DAPA and expanded DACA pending a final decision on the matter. Over the past year, uh, USCIS and most immigration officials at the department have been very busy uh, preparing uh, for executive uh, immigration reform. It's been our duty to to get ready for expanded DACA and for DAPA. Um, So in anticipation of that, a lot of good work has taken place both at USCIS and at DHS headquarters, as well as, as ICE and Customs and Border Protection. Most of you should know by now uh, that litigation stopped those efforts. And while we command the agency's commitment to preparing for uh, high volume, to prepare for uh, these new programs, we also have asked the agency to to keep the eyes on the ball, that there are longstanding issues in existing immigration programs that likewise require agency attention and also action. So we will continue to push for many of the things that we have now discussed in our annual report because while we believe that executive action will help fix in the interim, you know, while we wait for comprehensive immigration reform, our broken system, we also have many other ways in which we can work to address problems and make the system better. Ombudsman Odom further detailed requests received by her office from officials needing assistance with their immigration cases. Don, you alluded to over 7,000 requests for assistance received by our office. In March alone, we received 1,088 requests. It's been uh, uh, a, a real privilege to help the community um, with problems, but it's also been a challenge. Part of the increase in the request for case assistance to our office are due to increased stakeholder engagement. We're doing our job. We're getting into the communities. We're telling people we're a resource. We can help. Part of it is people are, you know, the USCIS customer is now more sophisticated as well. They know where they go to at USCIS to seek resolution. And when those avenues do not work, they also are learning that they can come to the ombudsman's office, advocates, attorneys, um, and other community partners are also becoming more and more aware of our services. And with that, you know, we, we embrace the challenge of having a case, more casework in our office. This year, we will receive additional funding. So uh, Office of Management and Budget has recognized the need to continue to build capacity in our office. And we hope that in years to come, we can at least maintain that capacity until we um, are allowed to expand through a- additional resources. Worth noting that the 7,555 cases received in the reporting period, which spans from April of 2014 through March, the end of March of 2015, was a 23% increase over the 2014 reporting period, and 15% of those requests were related to DACA, to the DACA program, particularly DACA renewal issues. The second highest 
uh, area in which we were involved this year on case assistance was employment, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, and break down for you what those cases look like. And of course, we continue to work on family matters and general customer service issues. The 2015 annual report provides information on the top USCIS offices and the top five primary form types associated with requests for case assistance. What are the offices at USCIS that present the most problems? Well, a lot of that has to do with the volume that they process. Um, so not fair to say that the Nebraska Service Center, you know, was the culprit of the, no- the highest number of requests for assistance because there's a context to that. Many of the requests for assistance received, as I said, related to the DACA program, and that's where the majority of those applications are handled. The Texas Service uh, Center came in second. Uh, they have been struggling with processing times. Alyssa just visited them a few we- a few months ago. Um, we continue to receive customer complaints about processing times there. Vermont Service Center followed. Then the National Benefit Center, where the provisional waivers are adjudicated, and then the California Service Center. Um, you know. This changes every year. It it depends on how USCIS allocates resources across its product lines. It depends on special programs, special initiatives that naturally will yield uh, higher numbers of case inquiries. And when there are problems in the processing of those applications, we know. So our office serves as as an office that can give a red flag to USCIS because we start seeing problems early on and we, we can usually point to where those problems are and ask for early resolution before it becomes systemic. Returning to the DACA program, Ombudsman Odom provided further details on applications for DACA renewal. Over the reporting period, uh, DACA, again, uh, comprised a a large number of the case assistance requests. Also, uh, folks whose employment authorization documents uh, were expiring, um, had been waiting for adjudication of their Form 765, came in second, petitions for alien relatives third, adjustment applications both under humanitarian programs and employment-based petitions came third and fourth. Let me go back and just uh, give you a little summary of what we discussed in the report regarding DACA. The DACA program has launched successfully many uh, Young people across the country are benefiting from work authorization and having uh, just the the stability that comes with receiving deferred action. During the reporting period, USCIS received over 300,000 DACA renewal applications. Earlier this year, we did experience a surge in requests for assistance for individuals whose work authorization documents were expiring. When we did a deep dive early this spring, we, uh, we noticed that USCIS you know, is correct. 92% of the adjudications were taking place within 120 days processing goals. Uh, however, when we did a, a, a deep dive, many of those applications that were submitted to our office for intervention were past processing times, irrespective of when the cases were filed. So that's 72% of applications that were filed during a period of time in our office reflected that they were not achieving the processing times. We've worked with the agency, we've shared the data, we've sought assistance for those individuals, and we've seen some improvement. The number of requests for assistance for DACA renewal has actually gone down, and we hope that the agency will continue on, and we can talk more about DACA and and some of our recommendations uh, for the long term that I think will work to prevent a lapse in employment authorization for this population. 
If a non-citizen is inadmissible to the United States and is seeking an immigrant visa, adjustment of status, certain non-immigrant statuses, or certain other immigration benefits, the non-citizen must file an I-601 waiver application. In this section, Ombudsman Odom details new developments regarding provisional waivers. Provisional waivers and waiver of ground of inadmissibilities continue to be key programs to maintain family unity, to, to create consistency, um, and address unpredictable processing times. Some of you may recall uh, the waiver program used to be administered abroad by USCIS offices, and it was uh, later centralized in 2014 to, uh, to be handled here, uh, what we call stateside. That program is going well and uh, continues to be highly utilized. In 2015, so far, USCIS has approved over 4,000 petitions of regular 601 waivers. We expect that people will turn to the provisional waiver, however, as a means to uh, applying for a waiver of inadmissibility, given that individuals can obtain a preliminary answer, a provisional approval, off their waiver and admissibility before they travel abroad to process their immigrant visa. We're also encouraged that in November of this past year, Secretary Johnson called for the expansion of the provisional waiver program to expand beyond immediate relatives, and I think that's going to make a big difference, and hopefully more people will come forward and take advantage of the opportunity to apply for this waiver stateside. We're also very much looking forward to USCIS answering the Secretary's call to look at the extreme hardship standard and to really break down what that means and and what criteria the agency is uh, reviewing and and individuals can try to meet to achieve um, the extreme hardship standard under the preponderance of the evidence uh, standard that applies to these adjudications. So we hope that regulations uh, should be coming out on the expansion and the policy guidance as well, and we will monitor uh, implementation of that guidance. Chief of Policy Alyssa McGovern next discussed some of the key developments in the area of immigrant employment, including high-skilled adjudication issues, specifically related to requests for evidence, known by the acronym RFE. Chief McGovern also speaks on employment authorization processing and the Immigrant Investor Program. Um, First of all, obviously we took a good look at the high-skilled adjudication issues. Uh, Requests for evidence continue to be a challenge for the agency and for the petitioners. Many RFEs continue to show a lack of understanding of the preponderance standard that is to be applied. Uh, Most lead to approvals, but the question remains of whether those are necessary. And, for example, in the report we took a good look at what the RFE rates are split between the two centers where centralization has occurred. And, interestingly, they they are moving closer and closer together so that the same levels of RFEs are going out in the same locations out of both centers, Um, and yet the overwhelming majority of these cases ultimately lead to approvals. Another area that we looked into covered in our report in some depth is the EB-5 Immigrant Investor Program. Um, It's been obviously a challenge for the agency with the creation of the new Immigrant Investor Office in Washington, D.C., and the removal of those cases to that office um, as the cases grow in complexity. Clearly, they have grown a a backlog that's further complicated by the retrogression for Chinese applicants. Finally, another area that we looked into that reaches beyond traditional employment-based categories is employment authorization document processing. This is a huge challenge for the agency. They received 1.4 million forms 
during just the 2015 reporting period, in the overwhelming majority of applications, their resources are sufficient to the challenge. However, we continue to see problems with timely adjudication. Um, but even putting aside the DACA applications, almost 12% of the requests for case assistance that we received in the reporting period were related to EADs that were not DACA related. Slightly less than half of those involve forms that were pending outside the posting processing times. Obviously, these are uh, deemed to be, uh, you know, we, we expedite these on our office. C CIS expedites them when we raise them with their attention, but obviously there are still a lot of problems, and often despite errors being no fault of the applicant in the mailing and delivery of those, whether it's a, in, in, an incomplete name or an incorrect name or an incorrect mailing address, the, the applicant is often forced to simply refile an application rather than try to get it corrected. And the delays we noticed were the worst in the summer months um, when, you know, more applications were coming in and staff and resources were dissipating. U.S. immigration law provides humanitarian relief for certain immigrants. Ombudsman Odom highlighted particular issues surrounding humanitarian relief, including special immigrant juvenile petitions, the affirmative asylum backlog, and fee waiver processing issues. A few things to highlight here for those of you who uh, work with um, unaccompanied children on processing a special immigrant juvenile petitions, um, you will understand uh, that we have uh, received many concerns over um, USCIS's interpretation of its consent authority. Um, and uh, that means that USCIS is often reflecting through their request for evidence uh, that they want to see more of what the state court looked at, reviewed, the facts behind the underlying state uh, court dependency order, uh, particularly the, the findings of abuse, neglect, of abandonment. Uh, the Ombudsman Office has taken the position that many of these requests for evidence span beyond the USCIS consent authority, and we can talk a little bit more about that uh, and about the recommendations that we have made in the SIJ area. The affirmative asylum backlog, a problem that is near and dear to my heart, uh, uh, given my, my background in representing asylum seekers. Uh, a big challenge for the Asylum Office, we'll discuss a little bit about what's going on, no mystery. The Asylum Office has been challenged by uh, an increase in the number of credible fear cases, reasonable fear cases, affirmative asylum filings, as well as children cases, affirmative asylum cases. So we will discuss um, shortly what, uh, what is happening there and, and the impact to our asylum system. Fee waiver processing times. Those of you who work with low-income applicants and other vulnerable populations understand that fee waiver processing is important. It is very, very important. And USCIS continued to show inconsistent adjudications of fee waiver requests, uh, inappropriate rejections, um, RFEs that, that do not reflect proper analysis of those applications, uh, very inconsistent in the way they uh, administer this part of their program uh, in reflecting shifting standards that often do not adhere to published guidance. So we've made uh, some recommendations in this area and look forward to continue to working with USCIS on, on these issues, uh, particularly as a new fee waiver form is in the works. Um, without having in USCIS having engaged stakeholders in the, this key area in the way that they have in the past. Chief McGovern ends the report overview with a brief discussion on USCIS processing. 
Finally, we also examine areas of customer service and integrity in the delivery of services, acknowledging, again, the millions of applications that the service handles, um, but we look to, to ensure that you know, even more of them can meet the high standards that are required. Among the issues we reviewed in the reporting period was the delivery of notices and documents, and notice that CIS still has a significant issue with respect to ensuring proper delivery. Among the, the items that we, we discussed were, you know, the expansion of delivery service using prepaid mailing labels um, provided by customers and to improve the alternatives for the delivery of these, these secure documents, not only prepaid but also to make better use of USPS uh, delivery with signature confirmation. Yes, so um, this gives us an opportunity to get into some of these issues at a little bit greater length and to maybe cover a couple of issues that weren't covered in the presentation. So you mentioned that the thousands of DACA employment applications weren't adjudicated within the required 90 days. Um, but most of the renewal cases, as I understand that maybe about 80% of them uh, involve late filing by applicants, as USCIS would define it, which is um, filing um, less than 120 days before expiration of the DACA status. I wonder if you could talk about uh, this problem and some of your ideas to remedy it, and in particular maybe that idea of temporary employment authorization upon filing an application. Thank you, Don. So let's go back. I think anecdotally folks report to us that some DACA applicants still tr struggle with filing fees. Mm -hmm. We have not done a study uh, about this. We have not uh, tried to tally up that data. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, some, some, some faces of agreement here in the room, still some folks are challenged by that. I do find uh, also that there is a lack of awareness of how the process works, particularly the renewal process and the consequences, which are so severe, of not filing timely. Um, and we're, I'm going to address the issue of USCIS not processing these timely, but I, I think as far as working with the community, um, USCIS needs to continue to do public engagement around DACA, around DACA renewals. I think that there's still a lot of room in our community to discuss the, the process with applicants, discuss the consequences of not being able to extend and to have a lapse in employment authorization. Um, I think that the agency must also engage on advanced parole protocols, um, who's eligible for advanced parole, but also what are the limitations of travel when you hold deferred action for child arrival, um, arrivals, when you hold DACA and you travel on advanced parole, what are the limitations of that document? And there's more diligence needed, uh, you know, across sectors, more diligence on our part, more diligence on the part of the community to make sure that this special population is as informed as possible. And I, I say we all need to exercise more diligence. That includes USCIS. It includes making sure that the resources are allocated to meet their processing times mm -hmm. of 120 days. And when the agency cannot do that, the agency should afford an automatic extension for automatic temporary extension for timely filed applications. Mm -hmm. um, it is often, and as has been um, over the past six months, uh, a problem when the individual still files within the ideal time, 120 to 150 days in advance of expiration, and the agency just cannot meet its processing times. 
employment authorization lapses. With that, driver's licenses, jobs are threatened, uh, housing is threatened, food security is threatened. As you're looking at a high-volume environment in the future, it is imperative for the agency to figure this piece out. And automatic temporary extension does not afford a blanket, you know, work authorization to people. It gives deference to the agency's prior approval of deferred action, extends it temporarily for people who have diligently filed on time um, to allow the agency the flexibility it needs to conduct case-by-case determinations and the proper vetting of these applications. It gives them operational flexibility. It gives applicants, um, you know, the security that their work permit will not expire even, you know, when they've made every effort to file timely. Yeah, it's, a, it's an extremely important point because, of course, a lot of us are hoping for a much higher volume program down the road, and, and this needs to be fixed before that, before that happens. You, you mentioned this stateside provisional waiver program, and I know the Ombudsman has been heavily involved in that, has been recommending something like this for several years now, and that's for people um, with unlawful presence. And you mentioned it was also recently expanded um, to cover all potential beneficiaries for family-based visas. And it's going to affect, you know, tens of thousands of people per year. That's the USCIS projection. You spoke a little bit of the problems related to the extreme hardship standard, but I wonder if you'd also talk a little bit to these summary denials of waivers based on reason to believe the intending immigrant is subject to another ground of inadmissibility beyond unlawful presence and how... um, how there's a presumption in, in, in certain circumstances that um, these people aren't eligible at all for, for the waiver because, because of that? Yes. So there is, uh, they ha- we have seen summary denials. And as many of you know, the provisional waiver program only allows for provisional waiver for the grant of inadmissibility of unlawful presence. Other grants of inadmissibility, including fraud, crimes that render an individual inadmissible, uh, would not qualify someone, would disqualify someone from, uh, for, from a provisional waiver. Now, USCIS has an obligation to determine if, the, if there is reason to believe that the individual is inadmissible under other grounds, uh, grounds other than just unlawful presence. And that's where we have seen problems. I've addressed it directly to the director in a formal letter, um, and we have continued dialogue in this area. Why? Because we are still seeing applicants who are facing summary denials when they have been convicted of petty offenses that don't rise to the level of inadmissibility or may qualify as a youthful offender that also will not disqualify them from this waiver, may not be a crime involving moral turpitude, and do not simply constitute a bar to his inadmissibility. And we're seeing summary denials without proper analysis of why the officer believes, there's, you know, has reason to believe that this individual is inadmissible. Um, that also includes you know, fraud allegations, denials based on fraud without sufficient legal, um, fa- sufficient facts to, to uh, supplement the conclusion that the individual has engaged in fraud. So the, the new guidance was issued, um, and we felt the guidance was adequate, very adequate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're still seeing summary denials on criminal grounds, um, but we're also seeing cases with administrative errors done, mm-hmm. and I think that that's another piece that needs to be addressed about of the cases we submitted to USCIS during the reported period were reopened because the agency had committed administrative error. And there are no motions to reopen or reconsider available to this applicant 
pool. So when there's no other option, the agency commits errors. They have no way to correct, to self-correct, unless individuals come to the ombudsman's office uh, and seek reopening that way. Um, so that's something that we have recommended in our report. We have uh, advised the agency that there are template requests for evidence that are problematic as well, uh, and the lack of appeal really continues to hinder the progress of this program. And on, just back to the extreme hardship standard for just a, a moment, there's a question as to whether there should be a presumption of extreme hardship in certain circumstances, and I think that was in your report as well. Yes, it was. Could you speak to that for just a bit? So, yes, we have we have promoted and, and proposed uh, the use of the presumption of similar to the NACARA presumption. Right that many Central American individuals have benefited from. The presumption applies to a class of individuals that have shared you know, common characteristics uh, and uh, where the agency, given initial evidence, you know, can make a presumption that there will be extreme hardship um, if the individual is not allowed to remain or be reunited with family members here in the United States. Um, I think that it should be a presumption that the agency can overcome mm-hmm. um, if the officer uh, sees other factors that um, warrant that. Um, we expect that there will be new guidance uh, regarding the extreme hardship waiver. I frankly don't expect that it will include the presumption of extreme hardship there, but it is something that we should continue to to keep an eye on. And if the agency does not achieve consistency in applying the extreme hardship waiver, and that includes decisions, requests for evidence that reflect true analysis of all the evidence afforded in the, in the application packet, as well as decisions that show that that evidence has been evaluated, has been analyzed, and is, is included and considered in the decision. If we continue to see a pattern, a templated, deni- templated request for evidence that don't put the applicant on notice of the problem mm-hmm. with the filing, the deficiencies with the filing, and continue to see decisions that don't reflect adequate analysis, we will continue to, to press for uh, a presumption of extreme hardship. Thank you. And so just one other family issue that I wanted to raise, in which the report covers, which involves revocation of approved family-based visas um, upon the, peti- the petitioner's death. And this is a, creates a great hardship, of course, for family members, intending immigrant family members, particularly those that are living in the United States. However, in these cases, there's a possibility of statutory reinstatement and there's also a regulatory process for humanitarian reinstatement in some cases. I wonder if you could describe some of the difficulties that people in these circumstances face and uh, what, your, what some of your um, proposals would be to address them. Happy to. And worth noting that in 2013, the Ombudsman's Office issued a recommendation regarding the processing of 204L in reference to the INA section that allows for reinstatement of these petitions, certain mm-hmm. petitions um, under immigration law for folks who are surviving uh, relatives. In it, we lay out what we th- think are, are the challenges, and that includes the lack of a form, the lack of a process. Now, that challenge is shared mm-hmm. by folks who seek humanitarian reinstatement under the regulations, is shared by individuals who try to seek just regular deferred action. There's no form. There's no process. There are no processing times. There's no receipt, you know, issued by the agency. Um, And and that creates inconsistency. It creates uncertainty. Folks file a request 
for reinstatement under 204L and also humanitarian reinstatement, they will eventually receive a letter from USCIS stating the requirements and perhaps spotting some of the deficiencies in the filing. A very difficult process to go through um, without a specific form where individuals are put on notice of the information that is required uh, for USCIS to make this determination. Incredible need for public engagement in right. this area. Many of these folks are sometimes, you know, they're out of the country. They've had a period to recover from the loss of their petition and relative. Um, they don't have lawyers. They don't know um, because they've been in the process. They don't know that they're eligible for this benefit. Mm -hmm. So multilingual public engagement is still key. It's mm -hmm. so necessary in this area. Um, Alyssa spoke uh, to the non-immigrant visa issues for highly skilled workers. Um, the Office of the Ombudsman has also been heavily involved over the years on issues related to, um, to the H H2 program. And of course, you know, these issues and delays um, have major consequences for employers and for the workers themselves. This is a particularly complicated program because it involves three federal agencies. I wonder if you could speak on what you've been recommending and doing to try to create a more streamlined, effective H2 uh, set of programs. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I have to mention Fred Troncone is on the line, and I, I want to thank him for his leadership on these issues, and Peggy Gleason for her leadership on fee waivers, provisional waivers as well, Lena Curry, and they're, they'll be available to weigh in more, as well as 204L. Um, we, we need expanded use of electronic processing for H2s. They're, they're, they're a temporary program meant to address seasonal need for workers, and it doesn't work so efficiently. Mm. You know, USCIS has not embraced electronic filing. Um, we need to have a system that affords for very timely delivery of vital communications between the government and those agencies involved, as well as the petitioners. So if you don't know about H-2As and H-2Bs, particularly H-2Bs, know that DOL, Department of Labor, is involved, USCIS is involved, and the Department of State is involved. And the electronic transmission of approval uh, documents between agencies is key, and it doesn't happen mm -hmm. in this 21st century. We don't have an electronic system that bridges all of the different steps across the federal interagency, you know, that touches on application, application process that's supposed to happen within a matter of days so that U.S. employers needing seasonal temporary workers can have the workers here while their seasonal need peaks, right, or hopefully before their seasonal need. Uh, peaks. DOL has taken the lead in this area. They have now permit applications to file for temporary labor certifications online. Kudos to DOL for doing that. They also email uh, correspondence to petitioners. More kudos to DOL. Mm -hmm. Regrettably, USCIS has not moved forward. They still send everything by paper. Mm -hmm. They will only uh, send it uh, via uh, express mail if the petitioner sends a prepaid uh, mm -hmm. express mail um, Emailer, emailer voucher, um, but it still doesn't send the approvals to the U.S. Department of State. You know, electronically, they don't do it. They send it by paper. Mm -hmm. So then you have workers still waiting to get their appointment at the U.S. Embassy abroad, um, and the lack of uh, you know an electronic processing here just really hinders this program in a way that we should be able to see some modernization. You know, that, that would warrant modernization sooner than later. Yeah, thanks. Um, just to return to the Special Immigrant Juvenile Visa Program uh, for, for a bit, because the report covers it very, very extensively. 
um, and, it, and it reports that the USCIS adjudicators have been challenging evidence that underlies the state court dependency orders, basically challenging the ab abuse, neglect, abandonment, and best interest determinations of state courts. Um, and as you mentioned, some of the USCIS overreach relates to the requirement that the DHS secretary consent to a grant of SIJ status. I wonder if you, and the report also says that you have recommendations that will be forthcoming. And I wonder if you could, I don't know if it's fair to put you on the spot like this, but what might those recommendations look like? What are you thinking about just generally without putting you too much on the spot? Sure. First, uh, you know, I think many stakeholders who work in this area know that centralization, centralizing these applications at one service center is key. Mm -hmm. They are now spread all across the country at various field offices with limited training experience and expertise in this complex area to mm -hmm. handle this application. So similar to our recommendation that costs provisional, costs regular 601 waivers to be centralized now at the Nebraska Service Center, we will be asking USCIS to centralize the adjudication along with other humanitarian programs, ideally with the Vermont Service Center, mm -hmm. where the VAWA, TNU visa program is, is handled. So that will be one recommendation. And as many, as some of you who work SIJ cases and work with children know, there is a, a tangled mess of guidance and a need for regulations in this area. So the second recommendation will be to please go ahead mm -hmm. and move forward with those regulations in a way that recognizes USCIS consent authority does not uh, entitle the agency to question the state court record uh, in the manner in which they have. They have to conduct their due diligence in ensuring that the state court order complies with the requirements. Mm -hmm. They have to do their vetting of all individuals to protect the integrity of this program, but the RFEs that we've seen in this area have been very program, pro problematic. Right. So we've, we've heard over the years and have experienced firsthand the underfunding of the immigration court system, and your report really lays out another equally important problem, which is the underfunding and lack of capacity among asylum officers. And it shows a growing backlog in affirmative asylum cases over the last five years. I was, I was shocked to read that 25 percent of affirmative cases, asylum cases, have been pending for more than two years. That's pretty remarkable. We know that the uh, Asylum Corps added 150 officers over this last year. We also know that there's a lot of attrition of officers. What else should USCIS and Congress and others be doing to address this problem? So we also know, John, that credible fear cases and reasonable field cases have increased exponentially over the past few years. So credible fear went from 11,000 plus receipts in, to, in 2011 to 51,000 in 2014. Reasonable fear from 3,000 plus to 9,000 plus. Affirmative asylum applications went from 56,000, um, I'm sorry, from 35,000 to 56,000, a 62% increase, mm -hmm. coupled with you know the rise in the number of affirmative asylum applications by children. I think that if you spoke to the leadership, you know, at asylum offices across the country, they share the same frustration mm -hmm. that we all share with what is uh, occurring here, which is the need to prioritize the handling of these applications in a way that puts a large majority of affirmative filings in the backlog. So a few thoughts on this, because I, I think, you know, you keep, we keep 
putting asylum officers in place to do this work, but at the same time, they are experiencing they're experiencing tremendous burnout from working incredible fear cases and children's cases as well as reasonable fear detained cases. So in all fairness to them, they're working very hard, but they're also suffering from attrition. So you bring new people on board while at the same time you're bleeding people out. Um, this asylum corps is very... Um, stretched thin. I think they're working hard, but it's going to require the reprioritization of, you know, the way cases are interviewed. Right now, you know, of course, credible fear, reasonable fear, applications by children, rescheduled cases are all are, are all prioritized in that manner. Um, eventually, as the number of credible fear and reasonable fear cases goes down, I mean, which is the trend for this year so far, um, but we're in the summer season, we'll see what happens in the fall, um, the hope is that they will reprioritize bringing in, you know, the affirmative caseload. In the meantime, they are trying to be more consistent in entertaining uh, expedite requests for cases in which there is great urgency that can be documented um, when you have families abroad who are in great danger, p- danger pending the adjudication of an asylum application here, and other circumstances that warrant expedite treatment, documented expedite treatment of those applications. So I think without that reprioritization, I think it's going to be very difficult for, for the asylum office to make progress on the backlog. I think it also takes, the, it's going to take the diligence, when we speak about the integrity of the asylum system, again, it's going to take discipline and diligence on the part of government, but on the, also on the part of civil society and providers particularly, and applicants, to ensure that we are all protecting the integrity of the asylum system, that we don't go back to, you know, the late 80s, the 90s, from the time when I worked at INS, when uh, there was um, some abuse of the asylum system because individuals wanted work authorization as a result of the backlogs, you know, resulted with them holding that EAD in their pocket for several years. So it's going to take all of us, um, and there's no easy solution to that to that problem. Thanks. Just to go back quickly to the fee waivers, I, I remember what an advance it was maybe five years ago when there was the creation of a formal fee waiver form, you know, and then in 2015 the length of the form doubled and it became more complicated. And you you addressed some of those problems, but I wanted wanted to ask you about two things. One is Maybe you could speak to some of the concerns related to pro se applicants and the use of fee waivers in a, in a long form like that, because I think that's a that's a real challenge. And then maybe maybe discuss the proposal to accept fees by credit card. I don't know. Maybe that's been implemented by now, but I know it's at least a proposal. Very challenging to show for an applicant who's applying pro se to right. determine which part of which eligibility applies to them. You know, are they under the poverty guidelines, uh, the the poverty threshold? Are they receiving means-tested benefits? They don't know. They don't know what that means. The average unrepresented individual does not understand what that means. Mm -hmm. So this form has to continue to be easy to use. We are very concerned with the doubling of the size of the form, even more concerned about the lack of engagement um, with the public on this form. Uh, uh, You know, the, the process was very transparent when this form was created. Uh, Many folks weighed in on what the form should look like. Social service providers as well as legal service providers working with the low income should be at the table, should be weighing in on what this form looks like. The the inconsistency in the applications has been rampant. Um, The rejection rates, uh, very high. As far as the, at least for the the regular fee waivers, as far as, um, you know, using credit credit cards, cards, you know, we're moving in that direction with naturalization. Perhaps Mm -hmm. we'll move in that direction later on. I think that it will be a good pilot. 
Uh, as far as the New, New Americans initiative, you know, we hope that that will be a success for uh, naturalization applicants and hopefully it will serve as a best practice. Thanks. Yeah. So very encouraging developments in my, my view on the expanded use of parole over the last year. The Haitian Family Reunification Program, um, which allows intending immigrants in Haiti to join family members in the U.S. Uh, up to two years before their visa becomes available. It's going to affect 7,000 people from the start. And then the, uh, the Refugee Parole Program for Central American Minors, which also applies to certain parents of minors who are still in Central America. I know that these programs are, are just kicking off or relatively new, but any uh, concerns or challenges related to them that you want to discuss? I think on the Central American Minors Program, you know, and both in the Haitian Family Reunification Program, we're, we're waiting. We're waiting to comment. We've expressed some initial concerns regarding the CAM program on the, the cost of the DNA testing and how that's going to work out. We'll keep an eye on those programs. We think they're important. They're great progress, um, and access to them is going to be key. Well... Maria, did you want to say anything in closing? We wanted to thank you again for coming up and thank you for producing this terrific piece of work. And any last words? Thank you. No, just a big thank you to you, Don, to Rachel and your staff here and to all of you. Let me provide with information about the Ombudsman's Office, how to reach out to us. For general case inquiries, our email is cisombudsman, all together, cisombudsman at hq dot dhs.gov cisombudsman at hq.dhs.gov that's for general case inquiries we do encourage individuals seeking case assistance to go to our website at dhs.gov forward slash cisombudsman to file that request if you search for CIS Ombudsman you'll get our page you will find an online portal where you can file a request for assistance that without a filing fee. For public affairs inquiries, uh, you may contact us at cisombudsman.publicaffairs at hq.dhs.gov. That is again cisombudsman.publicaffairs at hq.dhs.gov for public affairs and media inquiries. We try to answer our email diligently and respond to, to you. Be patient with us uh, as we work to respond to high volume, but we hope that, that we can continue to engage with all of you. And with that, thank you all for joining us by phone. Thank you again, Don, for the, the warm welcome and for all the support of our work. And um, we look forward to meeting many of you on the phone as we hit the road and continue to engage with you. For more information on the Center for Migration Studies of New York, including publications, events, and video, visit us at cmsny.org.